Welcome back to the Pater the Water Dog Saves the Planet Peace Podcast. If you ever think that a bit more meditation and time in nature and a little less phone would lead you to a more peaceful life, you might enjoy some simple tips in my free ebook, Tree, Tea, No TV, The Little Book of Big Peace. Just go to my website, avaskolfsbeck.com, to download it. Shall we continue on with our reading of John Muir's Studies in the Sierra? This is a continuation of Chapter 1, Mountain Sculpture. This reading is a little rocky, no pun intended. So much, though, that I added bloopers at the end. You may wonder why I would read a passage with references to Muir's drawings in a podcast. I suppose because I began it and became entranced, and because maybe it will cause you to want to find the publication to see his drawings made by his own hand in 1874. In order that we may obtain some adequate estimate of the geologic value of this cleavage factor in the production of canyons, rock forms, and separate mountains with their varied sculpture, we must endeavor to find out its range, variations, and what forces are favorable to its development. What are the effects of its suppression in one place and the development in another? What are the effects of the unequal development of the several series? In the prosecution of these inquiries, we soon discover that the middle region of the west flank is most favorable for our purposes because the lower is covered to a great extent with soil and the upper consisting of sharp peaks is so shattered or rather has all the various planes so fully developed we are unable to study them in their simple uncombined conditions. But the middle region, while it has all its cleavage phenomena on the largest scale, both of magnitude and specialization, is also simple and less obscured by forests and surface weathering and affords the deepest as well as widest naked sections, the former in Yosemite canyons, the latter in flat basins like those of Yosemite Creek, Lake Tenaya, and Upper Tuolumne Valley wherein broad areas of glacier-polished granite are spread out as clean and unblurred as new maps. I should have stated that the three series of cutting planes mentioned above are not the only ones existing in these rocks, but we will consider them first because they are most marked in their modes of development and have come most prominently into play in the formation of those unrivaled canyons and rocks which have made the Sierra famous. In studying their direction and range, we find that they extend along the west flank from latitude 36 degrees to 40 degrees at least, and from the summit to the soil-covered foothills, and in all probability further observation would show that they are coextensive with the length and breadth of the chain. We measured the direction of the strike of hundreds belonging to the two vertical series, many of which run unbrokenly for miles in a tolerably uniform course, the better developed ones nearly at right angles to the axis of the range, the other parallel with it. 
canyon sections show that they cleave the granite nearly vertically to a depth of 5,000 feet without betraying any tendency to give out. The horizontal series appear also to be universal. In some places, these divisional planes are extended within a few inches of each other, while in others, only one conspicuous seam is visible in a breadth of bare rock half a mile in extent. Again, many large domes occur that exhibit none of these planes and appear to be entirely homogeneous in structure as leaden balls. Thus, let figure 1 represent a horizontal section of the range, A, B, C, D cones and conoids where none of the cleavage planes appear. The question here arises, are these domed portions cleavageless or do they possess the same cleavage as the surrounding rock in an undeveloped or latent condition? Careful observation proves the latter proposition to be the true one, for on the warm and moist surfaces of some of the older domes, we detect the appearance of incipient planes running parallel with the others, and in general whenever any rock apparently homogeneous in structure is acted upon by the spray of a waterfall, its cleavage planes will appear. We may conclude, therefore, that however numerous the areas may be which seem solid and equal in structure, they are still traversed in definite directions by invisible cutting planes which render them separable when the conditions required for their development have been supplied. Figure 2 represents the side of a dome at the head of Yosemite Fall with parallelopipedal blocks developed along its base. The development of the brick structure is probably due to spray blown back from the brow of the fall in storms. It is to the development of these brick-making planes by long-continued atmospheric action that the picturesque ruins so frequently met with on lofty summits are due. Where only one of the cutting vertical series has been developed in a granitic region otherwise strong in its physical structure, and a sufficient amount of glacial force exerted in a favorable direction has been concentrated upon it, its rocks have been broken up in flakes and slabs, and those majestic merle precipices produced which constitute so sublime a part of the Yosemitic scenery of the Sierra. Another series of cutting planes which pass diagonally through that which we have been considering give rise to pyramidal and roof-shaped forms. This diagonal cleavage is found in its fullest development in the metamorphic slate of the summit, producing the sharp pointed peaks for which the summit region is noted. To it is also due the huge gables which are found in Yosemite and Tuolumne Canyons, such as the Three Brothers and the pointed rock adjoining the Royal Arches. Figure 4 represents the highest of the big Three Brothers, Yosemite Valley, illustrating diagonal cleavage in granite, and Figure 5 is a gable on the south wall of the Tuolumne Canyon. It will be at once perceived that the forms contained in figure 6, a rock situated near the small side canyon which separates El Capitan 
and the three brothers in Yosemite Valley have resulted from the partial development of both diagonal and rectangular cleavage joints. At A, B, C, D, incipient diagonal planes are beginning to appear on the otherwise solid front. Some of the planes which have separated the two summit blocks, E and F, may be seen at G. The greatest check to the free play and controlling power of these divisional planes is the occurrence in immense numbers and size of domes, cones, and round wave ridges together with an innumerable brood of modified forms and combinations. The curved cleavage which measures and determines these rounded forms may be designated the dome cleavage, inasmuch as the dome is apparently the most perfect typical form of the group. Domes of the close-grained siliceous granite are admirably calculated to withstand the action of atmospheric and mechanical forces. No other rock form can compare with it in strength. No other offered so unflinching a resistance to the tremendous pressure of the glaciers. A dam of noble domes extends across the head of Yosemite Valley from Mount Star King to North Dome, which was effectually broken through by the combined force of the Hoffman and Tenaya glaciers. But the Great South Leo Glacier, which entered the valley between Star King and Half Dome, was unable to force the mighty barrier and the approach of the long summer which terminated the glacial epoch, found it still mazing and swedging compliantly among the strong unflinching bosses, just as the winds are compelled to do at the present time. The Star King group of domes, figure 7, is perhaps the most interesting of the Merced Basin. The beautiful conoid Star King, the loftiest and most perfect of the group, was one of the first to emerge from the glacial sea, and ere its newborn brightness was marred by storms, dispersed light like a crystal island over the snowy expanse in which it stood alone. The moraine at the base is planted with a very equal growth of manzanita. There appear to be no positive limits to the extent of the dome structure in the granites of the Sierra when considered in all its numerous modifications. Rudimentary domes exist everywhere, waiting their development to as great a depth as observation can reach. The western flank was formerly covered with slates, which have evidently been carried off by glacial denudation from the middle and upper regions, small patches existing the summits and spurs of the Hoffman and Merced Mountains are all now left. When a depth of two or three thousand feet below the hot of the slates is reached, the dome structure prevails almost to the exclusion of others. As we proceed southward or northward along the chain from the region adjacent to Yosemite Valley, dome forms gradually become less perfect. Wherever a broad sheet of glacier ice has flowed over a region of domes, the superior strength of their concentric structure has prevented them from being so extensively denuded as the weaker forms in which they lie embedded, but after thus obtaining a considerable elevation above the general level, unless their cleavage planes were wholly latent, they were liable to give way on the lower side, producing forms like figure eight in every stage of destruction. 
In the case of rocks wherein no cleavages of any kind were developed, forms have resulted which express the greatest strength considered with reference to the weight and direction of the glacier that overflowed them. Their most common form is given in figure 9. Some of their cross-sections are approximately given in figure 10, but few examples are to be found where cleavage and irregularity of hardness do not come in to complicate the problem in the production of that variety of which nature is so fond. We have already seen that domes offer no absolute barrier to the passage of vertical and horizontal cleavage planes, but it is also true that domes cut one another. Figure 11 is a section obtained near the head of a remarkably deep and crooked gorge in the Tanaya Canyon four miles above Mirror Lake. The broken edges of the concentric layers of a dome marked thus, quotation marks, present themselves on the overleaping wall of the gorge, and upon the buried dome whose section thus appears another dome is resting, furnishing evidence that a series of concentric shells which form a dome may be cut by another series of the same kind, giving rise to domes within domes and domes upon domes. Figure 12 represents bricks, 30 or 40 feet in height, placed directly upon a smooth, well-curved dome, which dome in turn is borne upon and rather stands out from a yet larger dome curved surface, forming a portion of the east side of El Capitan Rock near the top. Thank you for joining me for the Pedro the Water Dog Peace Podcast. Until next time, sit with yourself in silence every day. That self with a capital S. We are all scholars of peace. Peace and love to you all. Podcast music is Dalai Lama Riding a Bike by Javier Peque Rodriguez. A link to his music on Spotify and Bandcamp are in the show notes. Support messages of peace in the planet by joining my Patreon for as little as a cup of coffee per month at patreon.com. Just search Avis Kalbspeck or Pedro the Water Dog to find me. Pedro the Water Dog Saves the Planet books 1 through 5 are available at all your favorite online bookstores or at avaskalfspec.com. Book 1, One More Year, is available as an audiobook on all the audiobook sites with the other books coming soon to audio. If you enjoyed this episode or are at least curious about the future ones, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thank you again. Listen for the peace.
with parallel parallelopipedal with parallelopo parallelopidal parallelopipedal with parallelopipedal parallel with parallelopipedal 